Oh yeah, Metal Ranch, how we doing? All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and try something different tonight. All right, I have identified something about you guys. I love it. It's a lot of fun. But what we're going to do tonight is instead of cheering something, when I count to three, we're going to applaud because I recognize y'all like to do that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to get it all out of the way up front. And then we're going to just continue on with God's word. You go with that? All right, so everybody put your hands in. Put your hands in on the count of three. We're just going to get it all done right up in front. Ready? One, two, three. Here we go. Ah! Yeah. Woo. All right. And let's go. All right. So I'm going to start. I'm going to start by asking a simple question and sharing a little story about my life starting right here at Hume Lake Christian Camps. My question is, and you guys just ponder this among yourself, have you ever thought that you had something figured out only to be completely wrong in the end? My first summer here, I was new to Hume Lake. I had come as a camper, but I'd never worked there before. And I lived out in these trailers. And at Hume Lake, when you come for summer staff, they don't want you driving your personal vehicle vehicle around because then there's just too many cars on the roads at Hume. And so they tell you to bring some other means of transportation, whether that's a skateboard or, you know, now they got the one wheels. They didn't have those back in 2005. Um, but a bicycle is the preferred method. But I don't have a bike. I still to this day don't have a bike. And so I called my buddy Garrett. Garrett was one of my best friends. And I said, Garrett, look, I'm working at this camp in the mountains for the summer. And I know you got a couple of bikes. And I was wondering if there's one that maybe you could loan to me. And he goes, bro, I love you, man. And yes, I do have a bike. Um, and I'd be happy to, to, to give it to you. And I'm pretty sure it'll fit in your car. This is the, the bike that my friend Garrett hooked me up with for the summer. Yeah, y'all are like, dude, that's sick. Except for when you're six foot seven, 250 pounds, you don't fit all that well on a BMX bike, all right? But I was super thankful for my friend Garrett loaning that to me. And so that's what I brought up here uh, to Hume Lake for the first time, my first summer. And two weeks in, I'm super desperate for friendship. I just went through staff orientation, and this dude named Josh comes up to me and he goes, Kevin, do you want to bike the loop? before work tomorrow. And I was like, bro, Josh, that sounds like a killer idea. See, I'm desperate for friendship. And, 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 and he goes, oh, great. Well, let's meet at five in the morning and we'll bike the loop. And I'm thinking, dude, Josh, work starts at nine. Why would we meet at five? Because what I'm thinking is the loop is the two and a half to three mile trail around the lake. And I'm thinking there's no way that that's going to take four hours. But because I am so desperate for friendship, uh, I don't bother to ask questions. And so I just look at him. I'm like, yeah, bro, five in the morning. That sounds great. And so the next day rolls around. I set my alarm. I'm super eager to meet my new friend, Josh, that I've known for a grand total of like 36 minutes. And we meet out in front of my trailer. And so I pull up with my sweet BMX bike and some baggy basketball shorts and a thin hoodie and my $1.99 flip-flops that I got from Old Navy. And Josh pulls up 
wearing what looks to be like a space age suit. It's one of those spandex suits that's like all encompassing from ankle all the way to neckline. And it's got a zipper in the back. And I look at him and he's got these really gnarly big old sunglasses and this, this helmet. I don't even have a helmet, but this dude has a helmet. And it comes to a point in the back. And I'm looking at this guy like, what? What is this guy fitting to do? I don't understand what's about to happen. And this is where I should have probably asked questions. But again, I thought I had this figured out. I've been at Hume for a while. And I'm thinking, we're going to do this three-mile thing. Maybe he just, you know, likes to, you know, get his gear on and test it out. So he goes, he looks at me up and down, and he's like, you're ready to do the loop? And I said, born ready, baby. And he goes, okay. And so we take off going. And I'm on my BMX bike, and by the way, I failed to mention this portion. The BMX bike is a standard BMX bike, and I am a larger-than-life person. And I cannot physically sit down and pedal at the same time because my knees hit the handlebars. And so anytime I'm on this bike, I'm standing. I'm like this, locked arms, my legs are flailing out to the side, and I'm giving it all I got. This guy's got a bike that's like real skinny, and it's got these little itty-bitty tires on it. And he's got these handles that curl, and they got all these gears and crankshafts on them. And this guy's just going for it. He's got these shoes that have these clips that clip right into the pedals. So like he's for sure staying on that bike. I've got $1.99 flip-flops from Old Navy. And he's pedaling in front of me, and I'm doing my best to keep up. Look, I'm a college athlete, and there's no way some dude in a spandex suit is going to beat me in a bike race, all right? And so I'm going. I'm giving it all I got. He's right up in front of me. He's probably going at, you know, two quarters of his normal speed because he looks at me, and he's like, this guy's an idiot. He should have asked some questions, but I didn't, so we just kept going. We start going past the security booth, which y'all passed on the way in here. And I start to think to myself, well, this is an odd way to go around the lake. This is silly. I wonder why we're going this way. But I don't ask questions because I'm thinking, my friend Josh has got my back. He knows what's up. Maybe he knows some secret cool way around the lake. And I'm thinking, I'm just along for the ride. He starts to go up this, this steep incline. And I'm on this bike. And I don't have any clippy shoes. And I got these baggy shorts. And I got these $1.99 flip-flops. And my arms are locked. And my legs are already burning. And he looks back at me and goes, how you doing back there? Because there's already a substantial distance between us. And I'm like, dad, I'm good, man. I'm doing really good. And he's like, great. I'm glad to hear it. We're about to start climbing. And I was like, climbing? I thought we was going on a bike ride. I didn't sign up for any harnesses or figure eights or anything like that. I'm not climbing nothing. I don't know if you guys noticed when you came into Hume, Hume is in a valley. We're at about 5,200 feet um, at Hume Lake proper. And in order to get to Hume, you got to go up to go down. And so we're pedaling and it's getting really hard and my quads are burning and my calves are burning and my arms are burning because at this point, we're about 30 minutes into this ride. And at this point, my arms are actually doing most of the work because my legs are really tired. So I'm standing up on this bike and I'm going, I'm doing one of these side to side and the whole bike shifting. And Josh is like a little dot (laughs) that's up in front of me. And every now and then he goes, you still back there? And I'm like, yeah, as I'm about to cry, but I wasn't going to cry because, again, college athlete, and I could totally beat this dude in a bike race, right? And I'm not about to admit that this is hard. And then I'm on this windy road. And I remember driving on this windy road when I got to camp. I rode up with a friend because I didn't have a car to leave here anyways. And I look behind me. I look over my right shoulder as I'm, as I'm on this super steep incline, And I look over my right shoulder and I see this picture. And I look at that and I go, 
to myself in my brain, is that the lake? Where are we? And Josh is so far in front of me. He's in those mountains way off in the distance right there. I'm just kidding. But he's so far in front of me that I'm like, I can't call out to him to begin to ask questions. I just have to like grit and bear it. Because there's something about me in life. I don't tend to give up on things ever. And so I'm like, I am completing this loop if it kills me. That is my new mindset. I now realize in my moment of peril that this is not the three mile loop around the lake that I thought. I'm in for the long haul. And I'm on my BMX bike with my $1.99 flip flops. And I have no idea where my newfound friend Josh is, but I'm about to denounce our friendship when I find him. I get to this place called Grant's Grove. Most of you have probably passed it on your way to Hume. It's at the top of what is known as the loop. I now know this. And Josh is chilling. He's waiting for me in his new age space outfit with his little thin wheel bike. And I'm like huffing and puffing and my calves feel like they're gonna explode and my arms feel like they're gonna explode. And all I really want in this moment is a shower and a hammock. And I pull up to him and he's like, hey, how you doing? Oh, <laughs> I wanted to be anywhere but there at that moment. And I look at him, I'm like, I'm chilling. <laughs> I'm great. And he's like, really? Wow, that's impressive. He's like, well, you're halfway through. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, halfway through what? Life? Because I feel like I'm more than halfway through life at this point. He goes, no, 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 halfway through the loop. The loop is a 26-mile bike ride from Hume Lake back to Hume Lake. That's why they call it the loop. And I'm like, hmm, should have asked some questions. He goes, but guess what? It's about to get better for you. You're really going to enjoy this next part because it's predominantly all downhill. See, when you leave Hume Lake at 5,200 feet, you get to a little over 7,000 feet where Grants Grove is. And then if you're going to take the other entrance into Hume Lake, you got to go back to 5,200 feet. That's how it works. It's a loop. And so he starts to go. I catch my breath for a bit because I'm thinking I no longer like this guy, nor do I want to be his friend. I am great with destined to be lonely for the rest of my life if this is the guy that I have to be shackled with. He takes off. I give him about a 15-minute head start. He's, he's probably way in front of me with his little space suit. And then all of a sudden, I get back on my BMX, and I'm like, oh, I'm like the tin man, man. I'm trying to bend my leg to get on this tiny little bike. And I start to go. And there's this phenomenon that happens when you're on a bike that has no gears. You start going downhill, and you're pedaling, and then all of a sudden, you realize you don't need to pedal anymore. <laughs> and so you're just kind of hanging on. And then all of a sudden, you're going as fast as the cars in the national park, and you're starting to panic a little bit because, you know, Josh has like six brakes on his bike, and I got one little tiny one right here on the right handlebar, and I'm pressing it. I'm white-knuckling that sucker, and I am not slowing down at all. I'm screaming past all sorts of Suburbans and Yukons as I'm going downhill, hairpin turns on the cliffs of mountains, and I catch up to Josh, and I speed past him and I go, I hate you, as we go. 
but I love you in Jesus, right? And I'm going and I'm screaming and literally I am like, this is how it's going to end. Oh my goodness, this is how my story wraps up. And I start to go faster as I start to make my way down into Hume Lake to the point where I'm standing and I take my $1.99 flip-flop on my left foot. I still remember which foot it was. On my left foot, I, I kick it back on the wheel like this to try and slow myself down. Smoke is coming off my $1.99 flip-flop. I can feel the heat through it. And I'm like, oh, help me, Jesus. Right? I pull into Hume Lake right by the dining hall where the big lawn is in Ponderosa. And I take Garrett's bike that he loaned to me and I go, ah, and I just throw it. And I lay down on the lawn and I have never prayed such an honest prayer in my life as I sat there on that grass. See, I thought that I had the loop figured out, but I was way wrong at the outcome. Tonight, we're gonna be in John chapter eight, and so if you have your Bible and you wanna follow along, turn to John chapter eight. We're gonna look at a story. We're gonna look at a story where the Pharisees had a plan. They had something figured out. They thought that they'd already determined an outcome where they were gonna catch Jesus. They were gonna catch him in a slip up so that they had some way of punishing him. But yet what they experienced was something completely different than they had planned out. We're gonna be in John chapter eight, starting in verse two. It says this, early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught, taught them. Don't miss it, all the people. So at this point, Jesus is gaining quite a following among the people. And they're coming to hear what he has to say. And every time that Jesus teaches or performs a miracle at this point in his ministry, the Pharisees try and trap him. They try and imprison him. And yet somehow he escapes. But they're hoping that this time is different. Check out verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Last time I checked, this particular sin cannot be committed alone, but let's continue. Verse five, now the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Here's where they want to catch Jesus. They basically pit Jesus to have two options, and both options are going to end up with Jesus interpreting something incorrectly. They, they, they do this in such a way because they know the law backwards and forwards. Remember, the Pharisees have it memorized, and in Deuteronomy 22.22, it actually gives an instruction as to what to do if someone is caught in this act. And in that passage, it talks about the fact that both people of this act are to be punished and that the punishment is death. And so what they're hoping is that Jesus agrees to the stoning and then they would do it and then they would imprison him because that's not actually what the law said. Or maybe uh, he wouldn't recognize that there's only one person instead of two. Oh, and then she is wrongly accused or, or wrongly punished because there's two people. They're trying to put Jesus in a lose-lose situation to finally trap him. 
to finally close his mouth so that the, his following would finally disperse. Verse six, check it out. They said to him, or they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. No one knows exactly what Jesus is writing in the dirt at this point. You know, some people who have studied God's word backwards and forwards believe Jesus to have written the sins of each person in the audience in the dirt. I look at this passage, and it's my own belief that that Jesus starts to write out the Ten Commandments into the dirt. Once again, showing that God is carving out law into stone with his finger. That's the way that the law, the Ten Commandments, came to be in the first place. Way back, it was handed down from God to Moses. Jesus is writing in the dirt in the same way that his father would have written in the stone. Verse 7, and they continued to ask him. He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote in the ground. Him who is without sin. Romans 3.23 makes this really clear. For all, remember that word, I have it circled and highlighted and underlined. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the question that we want to get to tonight is what is sin in a room this size, I have to imagine we all have a different understanding of it. We all have a different, uh, differing opinion of the gravity that sin is in our lives. And we probably all have a way of keeping it hidden in the darkness and not truly dealing with it. What is sin? Any thought, word, action, or attitude that doesn't bring glory to God. It is treason against an almighty all-powerful God. And if you're familiar with the word treason, you know that a punishment has to be paid for it. And that punishment is usually very, very costly to the one who commits it. Exodus 23, this is where we see the Ten Commandments handed out from God to Moses to his chosen people. It says this, this is the first of the ten. You shall have no other gods, lowercase g, before me. And so often, the root of our sin is that we place ourselves on the throne of our own life. And most of the time, our sin brings us glory because we're hungry for it. When we were created to ultimately bring him glory, that is the only thing that will truly satisfy because that is what we were intended to do from creation. Most of our sin brings us glory and it points to our own supremacy instead of his supremacy. Ultimately, the root of our sin is we want to choose our own right and wrong. Look, the world that we live in says all sorts of things, but really at their root, they're packaged in a way that says, follow your own heart. And while that may sound really, really good, what that is encouraging you to do is to be your own ultimate authority which is treason, it goes against God, who is the universe's ultimate authority. 
God warns us of this throughout his word. He says that the heart is deceitful above all else. So our world is telling us one thing that is going to lead us on a loop that we had no intention of ever going on, while God is saying, I have what's best for you because I made you and I know you better than you know yourself. Look, when it comes to sin, we like to do a lot of things that are going to mask sin in our own lives. And I know that I've done a few of these. One of them is we like to minimize it. We like to pretend that it's really not that bad. We like to look at what we do and we go, oh, well, it could be far worse. That leads us to the next thing. We like to compare. We like to look at other people. And if we surround ourselves with enough, enough people who are doing worse things than us, then we really don't look that bad. And really, is our sin that costly? Is it so treasonous against God when someone else does something that is far worse than we do? We love to do that. The comparison game is an evil, evil game. It leads you down an awful road and you don't even realize how you got there and you, when you get to the end of it. The other thing that we like to do is we like to deflect. We see this in Genesis chapter three. We like to take our sin and we like to draw attention to somebody else. We do something wrong and we like to all of a sudden shift the focus to something else or to someone else, hopefully taking the spotlight off of us as if we're able to do that to God as if we're able to block the eyes of the light of the world with our own darkness. And then this one is the one that is the most dangerous in my opinion. It's the one that I did a lot in my own life because if you remember my own story, I grew up coming to this camp and I heard a lot of people talk about Jesus. So I knew a lot of things about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus, why? because I was too selfish to ever turn my life over to any other power or authority other than me. The thing that I did with my own sin is I procrastinated. I was like, eh, I'll just you know, make it right at some later time, at some later point, and it'll be fine. I had this invincibility complex, like I had like, so much time to do whatever I wanted, and then when the moment was right, I would go ahead and surrender to God. That led me down a dark path, guys. When I was 19, I finally said yes to Jesus, but he caught me at my weakest moment. See, I was trying to fill that void with all sorts of things. I was an achiever, I still am. I love, I love to achieve different things, to be victorious, to win. Uh, uh, competition's fun, but I've learned to make competition not my lower G God. I've learned to not allow it to sit on the throne of my life. But at 19, all I cared about was what the newspaper articles were saying. All I cared about was what the stat sheet said or what you know, the popular people around me were saying. And it led me into this desperation mode where I was continually looking for acceptance to find my own self-worth. And at 19, I remember I went to a party at my buddy's house and I... I put so many substances in my body, I honestly can't tell you what they were today because my mind can't comprehend. It doesn't remember. But fortunately, I believe this was God's hand over me. Fortunately, I decided to walk that day. I'm from a small town. You can pretty much walk anywhere um, and make it there in a very short amount of time. And so I decided to walk home from that party. And I stumbled my way to the back alley behind a pizza place. And there was a dumpster there. And the concoction that I had put in my body led me to get really, really, really ill. And I lost all of the substance that I had put in my body into that dumpster. 
And then I decided in my altered state that it was a really, really good idea to climb into that dumpster. Covering myself with my own filth and my own shame. Not figuratively, literally. And I laid there in that dumpster and I looked up at the sky and the stars were particularly, particularly bright that night. And I remember looking up to the sky and I remembered some of the things that I had learned long ago about how God created all things, including the universe and the stars. And I looked up and I yelled, God, I have no idea what a life surrendered to you looks like, but I've made a mess of the one that you've entrusted to me. And I'd have to imagine it's far better than this. And I climbed out of that dumpster and I went home and I came face to face with my mom who loves me very, very much. And she didn't allow me to sit in my shame. She allowed me to get cleaned up. But she knew her boy needed help. Look, Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of treason is death. Now imagine with me if you happen to grow up in Old Testament Jerusalem and you wake up every morning with your list of sins that you'd committed the day before. See, Levitical law had, had said that you had to pay for those sins with an animal sacrifice. See, the atonement was in the blood. And so you wake up with your list of sins and you make your way to the temple where you know, God resides. And God, because he is a holy and he's a righteous God, he can have no part of sin. So in his temple building instructions, he, he says that there is to be a veil that separates God from the sinfulness of man. A chasm between us, if you will. And that's not a mean thing. See, people couldn't possibly enter the presence of God in a sinful state. It would, it would equal death. That's God having mercy upon his fallen creation. So now imagine with me, person after person is lining up at the temple to pay this sacrifice for their own sin. You walk into this room and there's a priest who's there who would then bind your animal that you brought for your particular sacrifice. You would then, the sinner, right? You would then place both hands on that animal, pressing your full weight on the sacrifice. The priest would then commence the execution process of that animal. And the sinner would continue to press down on that animal sacrifice literally feeling the life escape from that animal. And in God's instructions, he tells the priest to not clean it up. So imagine with me, you happen to be the 500th visitor to the temple that day, the 800th, the 1,000th. Imagine the amount of filth that you walk through as person after person has paid with an animal sacrifice to cover over their sin. That nasty image is every single one of our sins to an almighty, righteous, and holy God. 
Look, sin is not for us to slough off and dupe ourselves into thinking that we are somehow good people. Comparison game does not work. That is not how God views it. And if that is not how God views it, then we should view it as God views it. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. Back to John 8, the Pharisees were okay with those wages for that woman, right? Her sin was far more obvious to everybody than theirs. But Jesus was not content and just simply drawn in the dirt and letting these guys off scot-free. Check it out, verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And I read this, I remember when I was early in my walk with Jesus, and I asked a mentor of mine, why did the older ones leave first? He said it simply. They were far more aware of their own brokenness than the younger ones were. Romans 3.10 says this, there is no one righteous, not even one. And those guys were well aware of the fact that they weren't righteous as Jesus drew in the dirt. Jump on over to John 9, and we'll kind of wrap up with this before we, before we finish back in John 8. We're going to do a little flip-flop. John 9, John 9 has one of my favorite stories in the Gospel of John. You've got a guy who was born blind. And the disciples come to Jesus asking a question about sin. Which one of this guy's parents sinned? See, they thought that the parent's sin equaled the punishment for the child. Jesus is going to take this opportunity to perform a miracle. He's going to illuminate the understanding of the disciples, but he's also going to bring sight to a man who was born blind, something that had never been done before in the history of humanity. And so he walks up to this guy. He spits in the dirt, and he begins to craft a clay out of his spit in the sand beneath his feet. He puts it on this man's eyes, and he sends him off to a well to wash, and he promises him, you wash it and you will be healed. Sure enough, this man's sight is restored. He's finally seeing the world around him clearly. He understands what the, the, the back ways and alleyways and, and streets that he's always walked down as a blind man, he now understands what they look like. All the people that he's had conversations from a, an early age with as he's begging for money on a street corner because that's the only profession that he could ever have afforded to him, he now knows what they look like. And people are totally baffled by what's going on. See, word gets to the Pharisees, and the Pharisees bring this, this newly healed blind man in front of them, and they start to question him and pepper him, and he gives them a response, and they don't like it. They don't accept his words, so they send him away. They then bring his parents in, and his parents are like, why did you call us here? He is an adult. He can speak for himself, and so they leave, and the Pharisees bring him back one more time to question him harshly, thoroughly, hoping that somehow they can force the answer that they long to hear out of this newly healed blind man who has been blind since birth. Again, a miracle that has never been done before. It says this in John 9, 24. It says, a second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. They are desperate. 
They need something. And they know that this guy has no idea of what Jesus is outside of this miracle or who Jesus is or what he does. And I love his response in verse 25. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know is I was blind, but now I see. Look, there was nothing this man could have done. And believe me, he probably exhausted every opportunity trying to find a cure. But there was nothing this man could have done to restore his sight in the same way that there's nothing that we can do that can make ourselves right before a righteous and holy God. Why? Because we are sinful and we are broken apart from the redeeming grace of Jesus. Hebrews 10.4 says it this way. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So all those sacrifices that were sacrificed back in the temple, they were never going to make permanent amends for sin, but they were going to allow us to see and experience the gravity and the weight of our sin and point to our desperate need for an ultimate sacrifice. The Pharisees get super mad at this guy. They start to hurl insults at him. They start to tarnish the name of Jesus. And his response is simple and it's pure. John 3, or John 9:33 says this: if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Let's go back to John 8. This is where we wrap up his interaction with the woman caught in sin says after they all went away, starting with the oldest, Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. I love this. While Jesus doesn't condemn her he also doesn't condone her choices see he's well aware of her sinfulness in the same way that he's well aware of ours and he'll call our darkness into the light see we have an opportunity to stand before God and call out to him he hears us and lay those things at his feet knowing that through Jesus he's already paid for them but here's the other thing that we have we have community around us And there's something healing when we trust people enough to surrender those things that really hurt our hearts because we feel the weight of them to another person who's also struggling in their own sin. See, it's a beautiful thing. God allows us to participate in each and every instance of our own stories in someone else's. Look, go and sin no more. Jesus knows that he's heading to the cross to pay for our sin. He knows that he's the solution to what the heart of mankind, God's creation, has been crying for for generations. And if he stays in the grave, it's no big deal. But if he has victory over the grave, my friends, it changes everything. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you and I praise you for who you are the fact that you see us in our moment of need, that you see the things that we'd rather stay hidden. Lord God, you are good. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for mercy. Lord, help us to understand 
how your eyes see our sin. Help us to understand our need for a Savior. Lord God, illuminate our understanding to the fact that we can't be our own Savior. We can't be the hero in our own story. Lord, help us to follow you far more than we desire to follow our own hearts. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.